This is season two, episode six of Logically Faithful. Welcome to the Logically Faithful podcast. My name is Keldun Swice. I will be your host. I am Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and tutor with philosophy with Oxford University. I have two amazing children and one wonderful wife. Uh, I'm glad you're joining me for this podcast uh, where we will engage thinkers to believe and believers to think deeper about their faith. My goal is to give you evidence for your faith so you can deal with suffering well and be more productive as a result of it the way I have. Thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the Logically Faithful Show. Uh, my point this time is to let your agony become your ecstasy. Your best days may not be your yesterdays. What is happiness? This is what I'm going to be going through here with you. See, when I was in college, I uh, took a job as an RA. Well, I applied for a job as an RA. And what happened there, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. I had put my entire hopes, dreams, visions, energy, time into preparing for this wonderful interview in Carbon Hall at Eastern Illinois University. Uh, so I prepared for that interview by reading up as much as I can about the school, the college, the, the, the uh, organizations of RA, what an RA does, all the different resources behind RAs. Oh boy, my mind was spinning. I think I was an expert on RAs by the time I got to the interview. <laughs> and then I walked into the interview. It was my um, second semester because I saw an RA was a resident assistant, by the way, who ran the floor. The person was in charge of the students on that floor. And you know the best part? They get free room and board. Yes! So I applied, and I asked a bunch of uh, RAs their advice, and I went in. So I walked into this room. I'm not kidding you. It was this huge boardroom table that held at least 70 people on it. And um, there was about, yeah, maybe about 50 to 60 people there. Uh, there was a gentleman sitting at the end. He had a T-shirt on and a blazer. He had thick brown hair and a thick big beard. And a bunch of, all the others were apparently RAs. And they're all just sitting there and smiling. And then I walked in. Then they all just stared. And I usually I'm not. <laughs> I was in front of people at the time, and I did terrible in public speaking. Uh, I just sat down and I was quiet. And they began to ask me questions. Uh, uh, what makes you good for this job? Why are you qualified? What, what, what is your passion? None of the questions that I uh, studied. Like, for example, the background of the school, what an RA does. <laughs> they didn't ask me any of these questions. <laughs> so I, I, I bombed the interview. I was terrible. I walked out knowing I wouldn't get it. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't get it because I didn't answer any of the questions properly and I just kept putting my foot in my mouth. Anyway, I regretted that. I went into a deep mental depression for a while um, because I, uh, I didn't know how to deal with failure at that level. Now, jump about 15, no, about 10 years later, I had completed my doctorate and I was applying for jobs. And but guys, I'm telling you, I applied for hundreds of jobs and uh, very few of them I even got an interview, let alone a call for. Um, so let that be an encouragement to you. Keep applying, don't give up. And if you don't have a job, make it your full-time job to get a job. So I, um, I applied, and uh, this time I went to this interview at a college in my area. And I walked in there, and there were only about four people for this interview. And uh, 
the four were uh, two ladies and two men. They were humanities and philosophy professors. And the uh, interview process called for us to prepare for the interview by giving a lecture. So I got up and I gave this guest lecture. While I was giving the lecture, the fire alarm goes off. So everyone leaves the building. I leave with it. I try to make some jokes about, oh, this is my interview. It happens on my interview day, etc. They didn't laugh. Um, so I walked in back, back from the interview and they didn't even let me finish the lecture. They said, thank you for coming. Uh, their faces were dull and dark and empty and bored. And I knew I didn't get that interview either, even though I prepared for it. But this time I was not devastated. I wasn't devastated because my hope, my happiness, my peace was not in that job getting that interview. It was in something greater than that, something more exciting, something grander because I wanted it to be in what God had prepared for me and I knew that he prepared something for me I just didn't know exactly what and if I didn't get it I didn't get it so my perspective was so important to me because I had to turn my agony into my ecstasy because knowing that my best days are not behind me they should be ahead of me and just keep that in mind as I moved forward and honoring God and glorifying what he has for me which is in himself and the things he had given me and as I was reading and learning about how to do this, so as I began to think about this deeper, I came across the work of T.D. Jakes, who's a senior pastor, who's an author, filmmaker, he's a bishop of the Potter's House, which is a non-denominational American megachurch. He's been on Oprah, multiple TV shows, the Steve Harvey Show, etc. Anyway, um, uh, he's, he's a wonderful speaker, incredibly brilliant communicator. There was a lot of questions on his theology, specifically regarding the Trinity, which many evangelicals have criticized him of uh, recent years, although he did come around and start admitting that he's been wrong and that he's humble enough to admit that the Father God is separate entity from the Son, even though they are all God in essence. Three who's, one what, which is the Trinity. Anyway, I learned a lot from T.T. Jakes, and one of the things he came across, I came across that he did was uh, five summaries of what it means to be happy or how to be happy. It's fascinating to me how you could go through that. Although, of course, happiness itself is a lot deeper than just summarizing it in some kind of cliche steps. Uh, it's a lot more than that. But at least these help us move forward in the process so we can find substance for our own lives as we are summarizing some of the greatest teaching and thinking of our own lives in the world history. You see, C.S. Lewis said it the best. He said, if you cannot take a complex topic and summarize it in a way a child can understand, then more than likely, you don't understand it yourself. Now, I know there are some topics that a child can't understand by default, but overall, I think there's some wisdom in that. So my thesis here, my point here, I don't want to use the academic terminology, is that we can turn our agony into our ecstasy so we can move forward in our lives and provide a better happiness for ourselves and those around us. So uh, as we do this, uh, let me, uh, I'm going to give you the five steps and go through the details in my own life and help, hopefully you'll connect to that to find ho hope for yourself as well. Okay, the five steps are as follows. The first one is own your own happiness. Be responsible for your own state of mind. Do not put that burden upon others, not on your parents, not on your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, not on your pastors or your mentors or TV or your health. All these things are temporary. They're fading out. 
They fade like the, like the noonday uh, dew on the grass. It fades. You need to own it yourself. You need to take responsibility for the things that will make you, you. You know your weaknesses. You know your strengths. You know the things that you can do. But do not be coddled up and saddled into um, uh, blaming somebody else constantly for what you are, uh, your faults. Uh, so own it yourself. Own it. Uh, because uh, when I did my doctoral degree, not my doctor, my MA, I turned it into my professor at Trinity International University. Wonderful professor, powerful professor, well written in his works on the problem of evil at the University of Chicago, who himself went through suffering of his of, uh, nature, and I'm hoping to interview him in a future podcast uh, regarding how he went through his own journey on that with his wife, Professor John Feinberg. And he had taken my doctoral, um, my doctoral, I keep thinking of that, my master's thesis, and the guy pulled it, it looked like he was dripping with blood when he was finished with it. He took his pen and he just marked up almost every page with nonsense. This is wrong. This is incorrect theologically. Nonsense does not make sense logically. And he went on and on. And I took that back and I, I, I was, had a fiance at the time. <laughs> she said, I told him, look, look how much he hates me. <laughs> And he didn't hate me. He was just being very critical of what I was doing. And I kept blaming him rather than taking responsibility for me to correct my thesis. Well, I ended up correcting it and turning it in and having and uh, moved forward in that regard. So my point is, uh, and what Jace is talking about, is own up to yourself. Take responsibility for the things you're doing wrong. If you're having on a healthy body, work out. Stop eating that junk food. Uh, do it little by little. You need help? Get accountability. Get people who will call you on it. Get people who will text you on it, etc. I think that helped me as I went forward and took responsibility for the things I needed to do. And I'm still working on that, by the way. Okay, let's go to number two. Turn your agony into ecstasy by challenging your own story. Change the way you talk to yourself. Write the own script for your life. Don't let somebody else write the script for you. Uh, when somebody else rejects me, when somebody else, uh, when, when um, uh, they, they don't want to talk to me, uh, when I'm not picked on the team when I was a kid, uh, sports teams, I wasn't picked. I think that's one of the reasons I never liked sports as much as I would like to. Uh, because I wasn't uh, athletic. I was more engaged toward the ideal realm, the theoretical realm. Um, so I was rejected from the teams most of the time. Because uh, I never cultivated that part of my life. My brother was different. He really liked uh, sports. Really into it. Uh, when I lost my child, uh, when I fight with my wife, when I lost my job, um, I create in my mind an, uh, a scenario that, Keldun, you are stupid. Keldun, you're not worth it. Uh, Keldun, you're not going to make it. Um, and people go through that, guys. You create this, this monologue in your mind, like you're too fat, you're too old, you're too poor, you're too skinny, you're too bald, Whatever that prevents you from moving forward. And God did not call that, give you that spirit of fear. That does not come from the Lord. That's from yourself and the demons around you. Let your agony become your ecstasy because your best days cannot be just the things in the past. They can be further ahead of you and ultimately in God himself, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Own your own script of your own life. Change your story. Make it one that you can feed your heart with. And I have a, another link, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, regarding speaking words of affirmation and words of wisdom and words of scripture to your own soul. 
Say to my soul, you have a hope in God. Say to yourself that you are created in the image of the Almighty. Say to yourself you, you are one of the redeemed. Say to yourself that you can make it because God says that you are not a loser no matter what everyone else says. Now, sometimes you may be, at for a particular thing, a loser, and when you own up to that, which is the first one, you can become better and rise up through it. <laughs> I mean, just to be real here. Moving to number three. Turn your agony into ecstasy by enjoying the journey. Enjoy the journey, not just the destination. Celebrate things along the way. So when I'm with my kids, I put my phone away. When I'm trying to spend time with my wife, I don't try to look at that thing. That, that, um, that mobile device is more addictive than heroin, they tell us. Um, I, I try to enjoy the moment. When a student comes in my office, I refuse to answer the phone. Um, because... I want to focus on them and look them in the eye. I want to live in the moment. And this is something I had to train myself to do. It wasn't easy. But enjoy the moment. Enjoy the time that you have while you're taking the time to do it. I remember I was at a cafe a number of years ago. I went in and ordered a coffee and I was waiting for my meeting. And uh, there was this couple that was sitting in front of me. And the mother was running around trying to help the kids take care of them. She had a kid uh, strapped around her chest uh, with some kind of baby bag of some sort. I don't know what that's called <laughs> to carry the babies with. And this other little baby that was a three-year-old who was uh, sitting down um, uh, twiddling her thumbs and trying to play with something because she had so much energy. But the mom's face was focused on the phone and the father or whoever that gentleman was with her didn't even look up once because he was staring at his phone as well. I don't know what their situation was in life. I can't judge them. But it looked like from a superficial level that they were not living in the moment. They were living in the next moment. They were thinking about what to do next or, or, or escaping from that. And it's sad, isn't it? I, I've been to uh, restaurants um, where I see couples sitting across the table from each other and not say a word to each other for an hour, entire hour. Are they really living in the moment or are they doing some kind of um, secret monastic uh, ritual? <laughs> I don't know. But guys... Live in the moment. Enjoy it. Spend time with people. Look them in the eye when you talk to them. It makes a difference to you and it makes a difference to them. Uh, number four. So going through the steps again. One is own your own happiness. Be responsible for yourself. Don't blame others. Two, turn your agony into ecstasy by challenging your own story. The, the words you say to your own soul make a difference. Uh, number three, enjoy the journey. Number four. Turn your agony to ecstasy by making your relationships count in your life. There are people in your life who are like parasites. There are people in your life who are like Klingons. And I'm not talking about the kind from Star Trek. The kind that suck the life out of you. They're emotional vampires. Do you know those types of people? I've had a lot in my life. I had to distance myself from them because no matter how much I poured into them, they kept sucking more out and were not able to rise up Maybe they need somebody better than me. Maybe they need somebody more skilled than me. Now, and I had to feed myself and be around people who were better than me. And that was a secret, actually, to one of your successes, if you could follow it. Find people who are better than you and spend time with them. And that has revolutionized my life for the last three years. I've changed the people I spend time with, I talk to, the things I read, the things I listen to. Because it's changed the way I think, the way I work, the way I believe. It's changed my life. You are the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. 
I don't know who said that, but it makes a lot of sense. Now, with that said, I am not saying you should not be in ministry for people who are hurting, who are broken, who are downtrodden. You need to reach out to those people too because they also need the love of God in their lives. But how can you give to people what you don't have? If you are not feeding the reservoir of your soul and filling it up with the Spirit of God, His goodness, His glory, His, with patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, how can you give that to others? How? So that's why I'm saying it's so important to, when you fill yourself up with that, then you can feed those who are downtrodden and broken, and then you can give life to others. All right, uh, number four. Now moving on to the number five. Uh, balance work with play. So turn your agony to ecstasy by balancing the work in your life with play. So I schedule times to play in my life as much as I schedule times to work. Because I, um, for example, this last weekend, I scheduled a time to go to the Grand Canyon uh, with one of my brothers in Christ. What an amazing time, a majestic place, which I'll talk about in a future podcast. I had to schedule that into my calendar. I had to schedule time to go see a movie, schedule time to go to a play, schedule time to date my wife, schedule time to see my friends. If I don't, it doesn't happen. I mean, how many times have you seen an old buddy? Hey, we got to get together. Yeah, we do. Slap on the back and you walk away. Never happens. So, hey, we got to get together. Fine. Let's take out our uh, smartphones and quickly add it to our calendars so that we can balance our life. Life is about balance, like a tightrope. In a, a circus, you have a tightrope walker who's walking on a balancing beam with that, that stick. He's balancing his life. And that's how we need to do that. Balance with work, balance with play. Otherwise, you become very difficult to deal with. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. You need to take a break. Did you know that when God created the heavens and the earth, he did it in six days and rested on the seventh? And this is where we get the modern calendar, by the way, from the book of Genesis. And that seven-day work week has been challenged and tried to be changed throughout the years and never worked. We keep going back to it. God did not need to rest. He is omniscient and omnipotent. We need to rest. And all the scientific journals on study on rest and recuperation uh, tell us that if you do not get proper rest, sleep, Nutrition, you cannot properly function on your job and do the things well. Listen to me. We live in a world that bows at the altar of the urgent. I live in that world too. I have to walk away from my work to rest, to go for a swim, go for a walk, enjoy nature. Why? Because when I come back to my work, I can do it at top level. Rather than do it in, in a, out of my exhaustion, I could do it out of my reserves of joy and peace. So to, to uh, summarize uh, uh, the steps by T.J. Jakes, own your own happiness, uh, challenge your own story, that's number two. Number three, turn your agony to ecstasy by enjoying the journey. Number four, turn your agony to ecstasy by making your relationships count. Number five, turn your agony to ecstasy by balancing the work in your life with your play in your life. And that is just as important as all the others. And to ground this theologically, a number of years ago, I picked up a book that, that changed my life. It, it really, the trajectory of my life altered, um, mentally speaking, spiritually speaking, as I read it. It's called Desiring God by John Piper. 
And in it, he, he postulates the thesis of Christian hedonism. That's right, you heard me, Christian hedonism. It is a wonderful book. And in there, I'm going to summarize for you about this because it goes to my theme today about happiness. He talks about how Lewis, uh, the great writer, which I mention almost every podcast, talks about um, in his work, The Weight of Glory, that, um, listen to these words, they're just amazing. If we consider the unblushing promises of a reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised promise in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he quotes Pascal saying that all men uh, seek happiness. Everyone. Even those who hang themselves. It is the desire of every man, woman, and child. And Aristotle talked about that being the prime motif of every living being. Happiness. But what is it that satisfies infinite happiness? And the uh, mantra that I grew up believing is either you follow your own happiness or you follow holiness and follow what God says. Well, Piper's saying that shouldn't be the case because that's not what the scriptures teach. Um, he, he is a profound way he puts this together that really helped me rethink it. He, he took the, uh, the, the Westminster Catechism and saying that, that the mean chief end of his book is the chief end of mankind, which is the following. Our goal in, in, the, uh, in purpose in life is to enjoy God by, by glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And God takes delight in people uh, uh, delighting in Him. For God is more glorified in us than when we are most satisfied in Him. And he calls that Christian hedonism because the scriptures declare that in the fullness of God is our pleasures forevermore. And Jesus said that, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? Doesn't that contradict what I just said? If you look at it superficially, yes, but no. Because by denying yourself, you find yourself. You find who you really are made to be. By following the God who made you, you find yourself more. And guys, I found myself more and um, when I'm serving others, when I'm helping others, when I'm giving myself to others, rather than when I'm serving just myself. Because joy requires us to engage our whole soul, our whole body, in, in, a, in a sense of giving ourselves to someone greater than ourselves. And true happiness is found. Rather than walking around saying, I've sacrificed, I've given myself, and being completely miserable about it. I don't even want to be around that person. Because Jesus is right when he said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. Blessed are you when people speak uh, negative things about you. You are blessed because you're giving of yourself and people are not receiving that. That's okay because your hope and delight and happiness is in someone greater than yourself. And who is greater than our God? Who is greater than the Lord Christ who gave himself, and in giving himself, he found himself, because that is one of the principles he's given us, the paradox principle, which we could talk about at another time. But for now, I hope that summarizes that for you, and I hope it helps us move forward, and then taking the agony in your life and turning it into ecstasy, so you can challenge your own life, 
challenge your own stories, make your relationships count, balance your work with play, own up to your own life, and take responsibility for yourself so you can turn your agony into ecstasy and celebrate the things in your life and make them count. Now we're coming to our question and answer time. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. <laughs> okay, forgive me for the cheesiness here, but <laughs> da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. The question and answer time, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay, let's go to it. Um, this is from Josephine. Josephine wrote that, Dear Professor Swice, I've been reading and saw some pundits talking about how religious people are not as intelligent as atheistic or skeptical people. Is this true? I'm specifically referring to the May 16, 2017 article on the Journal of Evolutionary Psychological Science, which argues that religion is negatively associated with, um, what's the word here? Stupidity? Okay, stupidity. Or, yeah. Okay, well, Josephine, uh, <laughs> this is something I actually struggled with myself. Um, yeah, stupidity. I struggle with that too. But the issue of um, uh, intelligence and people who go into the sciences or people who are atheistic, um, is it necessarily the case that those who are in the sciences and those who are studying in the highest level of fields that you hear you refer to later on in your question are atheistic because they went into these fields and found the evidence to be overwhelming and then they became uh, skeptics. Is that really the case? Well, I've done some research on this in the past and something I struggled with myself. Um, and that's why I wrote that book called Blind Spots of Science, 10 Things Science Cannot Do, which is available free for you on my website, logicallyfaithful.com. All you have to do is sign up there and then you get the book. In there, I document that the, some of the greatest thinkers in the history of science itself, let alone all the other area disciplines, have been believers in people who bowed their knee to God. People like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Pascal, Descartes, Newton, Kell, and Mendel, Boyle, all were Christians are people who bowed their knee to God in one form or another. Not everybody who embraces the scientism of today or naturalism, the belief that only the physical is real, are actually people who are intelligent. No, there are people on both sides of the fence who are uh, well-read, well-researched, educated people, Nobel Prize winners. And furthermore, the Pew Research Study, which I recommend you look into, and I'll put it in the show notes, cites that um, 83% of people in America, at least around the world, I think will be around that same Say they believe in God, well, uh, or a higher power. But the poll of scientists actually finds that 4 in 10 scientists, that's 41%, say they do not believe in God. So scientists in general don't believe in God more than the average person. Why? Again, is it because the evidence is so overwhelming to them that they, that they, um, they, they change their mind when they got there? Ah, au contraire, au contraire. That's not actually the case. Let's do something dangerous and look into the research. So I, that's what I did. And according to the Higher Education Research Institute at the University of California, it says that people who go into the sciences or these technical fields are skeptical before they even get there. They're, that's by their nature. It's not the sciences that take people away from their faith. It's people who are already moving away from their faith, who are already skeptical by nature, who go into these types of fields. That's why I encourage my students, I encourage my friends who are believers to study apologetics, study for the reasons for your faith, and then go into the sciences, because we need believers 
who are in the sciences, people like Newton and Kepler, people who believe in God and want to see his mighty works and how he created the world. Because Newton said God created two books, the book of, of the Bible and the book of nature. And in this uh, research by the Higher Education uh, Institute at the University of California, they say the students tend to become more religiously skeptical if they engage in a lot of partying, watch a lot of TV, um, and her parents go through a divorce or uh, study abroad, which is interesting. Um, so there's different factors that make people skeptical. It's not because they studied the evidence. And by the way, Darwin himself, and um, if you read his works, was skeptical most of his life. It wasn't by the evolutionary theory itself that made him skeptical. And furthermore, the death of his precious daughter, Anna, at nine, altered his life as well. That caused him a deep grief and a questioning of God. Uh, Darwin, who was a progenitor of the evolution theory. Uh, of course, there were others, but I'm just saying on that one. So I hope that helps you, Josephine, um, that research and that information as you move forward in your own journey. And the rest of you, if you have a question for me, feel free to email me at keldoon at logicallyfaithful.com. That's keldoon, spelled K-H-A-L-D-O-U-N, at logicallyfaithful.com. Uh, and if you would, I would appreciate it. Leave a review on iTunes, um, and that would help me move forward with what I'm doing here. Now go make the world a better place, one life at a time.